Hey podcast people, how's it going? This is Azrin the Language Nerd here. I'm the owner of the Calgary Language Nerds and welcome to today's podcast episode. I have quite a list of things I'd like to get through. However, I have a potential meeting that starts in five minutes, but I, I think the person isn't going to show up. So we'll see. If she if she shows up, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a really short podcast episode now, and then I'm going to make another one directly after to talk about, to finish talking about everything I'd like to talk about. If she doesn't show up, well then we'll just make a longer podcast and it'll just be one podcast episode. Um, so let's get started. Now, I have a variety of things I'd like to talk about. The first one is reasonably short and I can talk about it in a few minutes, but it's quite important. Somebody asked me yesterday what I thought about getting caught up with doing with, with conjugations in other languages. So many languages have conjugations. This is where you take a verb and you change the spelling and pronunciation of that verb based on based on a variety of different factors. Okay? And not all languages have them. So Mandarin, for example, doesn't have verb conjugations. But many languages do. French does, Spanish does, German does, many, many, Gujarati does, Hindi, many languages do. And a lot of language learners get caught up with these verb conjugations. Caught up meaning they get confused by them. They can't remember them. They sit and they sit down and practice them over and over. They reread them. They try to write them over and over. They try to learn all the different verb tenses. They try to memorize them. So someone asked me, what do you think of this? Do you think this is a good idea? And ultimately I think, no, it's not necessarily a very good idea. You do have to learn verb conjugations, but I think many language learners go about doing it in in efficient inefficient ways. For instance, sitting down and write, rewriting your conjugations over and over is not an effective way for you to remember those verb conjugations. You can do that every now and then, maybe once every couple of weeks, you can you can do some verb conjugation drills, you know, maybe a couple times a month, something like that is okay, but you should not be that should not be one of your main study strategies. It won't work. I'm telling you. <laughs> So the question then becomes, what will work? What's going to work? If it's not sitting down and writing the verb conjugations over and over every day, every couple days, what's a more effective method? In my experience, a more effective method is, there's two actually, there's two things that go hand in hand. One of them is you have to do output in the target language where you express yourself in the target language. I would encourage you to do that in a written format and a spoken format. Written, meaning that you try to write things in the target language. Write sentences, write paragraphs, keep a journal where you journal about different things. And you want to write about things that are within your capability. For instance, if you're a pretty beginner, you don't want to be talking about your beliefs about global politics. That's way too advanced for your level. Instead, you may want to talk about your family, maybe your house, maybe where you live what your favorite food is, why do you like it, some hobbies, simple things, keep things really simple, and try to write about those. The act of writing about those without the use of an online translator, by the way, without using a translator, <clears throat> um, you can use a dictionary for individual words, but definitely not a translator. The act of doing that is is making you express yourself and actually apply your conjugation knowledge. You have to apply your knowledge. It's not just a rote drill of writing down meaningless conjugations. Does that make sense? 
A similar strategy is to do this when you're speaking. So instead of writing journal entries, you talk to yourself or talk to other people. Out loud, by the way. Not think to yourself, but talk to yourself or talk to others. Both can work quite well. It's the same concept. You have to actually apply your knowledge. You're trying to use a conjugation to express something outside, out of your mouth. And it's not a rote, meaningless conjugation drill. Conjugation drills, you're not actually trying to express yourself. But but expressing yourself is a way to remember conjugations at a deeper level. Now, that's one type of strategy. Input is the second type of strategy. Input meaning reading and listening. So when you read things in the target language, whether it be books, if you're really on the beginner side, you might just have to read some graded readers. Graded readers are like their texts, but they're simplified to match your level or even something in a textbook, textbook readings, reading things and noticing how the person who wrote the message, noticing how they've done their conjugations, noticing how those have come into play, noticing how things are written and why they're written that way. And saying, ah, look, this is said like this, and ah, okay, I can copy that now. Or another example is on listening side, you listen to native speakers and notice Oh, someone says it like this all the time. You know, like I've, I learned uh, in Spanish, I learned por and para. Por and para is a reasonably complex grammar point in Spanish. I didn't learn it by studying the rules. Now, I did study the rules. I did actually look at them and I did do a little bit of studies. I took some classes, but the but I, where I really internalized it was by listening to native speakers and noticing, oh, look, so-and-so said, esto es para ti. Oh, this is for you. Oh, para ti. I can say para ti. I can do that. Does that make sense? So you have your input and you, 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 you pay close attention to how native speakers write and speak and you pay attention and you copy them in your output. So the input feeds your output. You hear something, you copy. You hear, you copy. You hear, you copy. And enough of that imitation supplemented a little bit with a little bit of conjugation drills, a little bit of the grammar rules. You supplement, you, you sprinkle the grammar and the rules on top, right? The cake, the cake basically is you listening to native speakers, reading things written by native speakers, noticing how they say things, noticing how they write things. That's your cake, right? Or even, yeah, that's your cake. Well, half your cake, actually. The other half of your cake is you actually writing and trying to write using the phrases and things you're hearing, speaking that way, talking to yourself, implementing implementing the grammar rules, the conjugations, what you've heard, what implementing that in your own language usage. That's your cake. And the icing, because everyone likes icing, right? You need some icing on a cake. You got to put something on top. Otherwise, it's kind of plain. So the icing still matters, but it's just icing, right? You can't only have icing, but you could only have cake. So your icing on top is the grammar rules, the studying, some of the drills, the the writing down and, and practice, the doing the conjugation drills in a chart and studying things of that nature. So I hope that's helpful. I really hope that's helpful. That's uh, that's how, that's my view on it. And generally, that tends to work for the average adult. The the the, the strategies I talk about in my podcast and such, I try to talk and give strategies strategies that will work for the vast majority of people. Um, even though there are other strategies that work for some people, I think that's by the way a random tangent. Often when I see this is a flaw that I see in in some content that others other people make. Sometimes I might, I probably fall into this trap as well, to be honest. But one of the trap, one of the problems I see is content will be posted about how some individual 
was able to achieve a strong degree of uh, a strong level in another language and they'll outline their method and say this is what i did and and the mistake we make and i don't know if it's the fault of the content creator or it's the or if the if it's the fault of the people following what the person said i don't actually know but the mistake that gets made is people think oh this person did it like that and this is their method this is the strategy this person used let me try and implement that for me that i think can be a mistake because sometimes i should be pretty specific here I, it's not necessarily a mistake we have to be cautious when we do that because sometimes those methods th that's a method that worked for that person but it's not a method that's going to work for the vast majority of people does that make sense you have to realize that okay when people share what worked for them that worked for them it doesn't mean it's going to work for you or for the vast majority of people it might and that's great it might work for you right because what works for one person often will work for others it's not a one solution for one person oftentimes but you do have to take what you hear the grain of salt and follow yes follow but you want to try to find methods that that work for the majority of people but that's what you're looking for and so sometimes when you're listening to advice think about ask yourself the following question is the advice i'm hearing is it something that just worked for that one person or is this person sharing advice that that generally tends to that generally has worked in this person's eyes or this person's experience for a number of people? That's something you might want to ask yourself. Okay, the next thing the person I had a meeting with is not showing up yet. They're five minutes late. That means I guess I can keep talking here in this podcast. So wonderful. The next thing I wanted to talk about was a video that I watched by Ollie Richards. Many of you have probably heard of Ollie Richards. I think very highly of Ollie Richards in terms of language, his language learning advice and his experiences, etc., etc. Um, he's very, very well regarded in language learning circles in that particular niche or niche, depending on what country you're from. Um, and he made this video that's called eight, uh, eight Things That Polyglots Do Differently Than Other Language Learners. Feel free to Google it. His name is spelled O-L-L, is it O-L-L-Y or O-L-L-I-E? Let me see. I'm going to check right now. Ollie Richards. It's O-L-L-Y. O-L-L-Y, first name, and then Richards. Okay. And if you just go into YouTube, you'll find this video. Ollie Richards, search Ollie Richards, eight things polyglots do differently than other language learners. You'll find it. Okay. Now, I want to comment on his eight things. The first thing he said is that polyglots know their why. And this is true. I think anybody who is very connected to why they're doing something, whether it's learning a language, whether it's learning another skill, if you're very connected to your why, that's going to help you. That's very important. It will pull you forward. It's a motivator. It's incredibly important. The stronger your why, the better, the better things are going to be for you. And generally speaking, I think polyglots that are successful, that successful polyglots do generally speaking know what their why is. So I agree with that. The second thing Ollie Richards says is that polyglots, generally speaking, don't take classes, which I think as a general rule, as a general whole, in my experience, tends to be true. Now, I want to add a couple of little comments to what Ollie says. Now, just because the successful polyglots that you might see on YouTube and such don't take classes, it doesn't mean that taking classes is a bad strategy. Does that make sense? So I'm a great example. I take lots of classes, me personally. 
For me personally, taking classes is a must. When I don't take classes, I learn way slower. I can see that in myself with Gujarati, for example. My Gujarati has progressed at a, I've progressed a lot, but I would have progressed a lot further if there were more classes and such available, especially if they're group classes in an academic institution such as a university or a college. Those keep me in line because I can't fail the class. If I fail the class, they don't let me move forward. They might even kick me out of school if I keep failing. I have to pass at a minimum. And it is an extra level of structure and accountability that helps me move forward and helps me a lot. It surrounds me with other language learners. I, I'm, I become friends with the teachers, the professors. It's really useful for me. So I take classes. I also like private lessons. I'm a huge fan of private lessons. Oh my God. I think private lessons are, it's a, it's a gasoline on a fire. When you take private lessons with a good tutor, especially if the tutor has lots of experience actually helping people move forward and progressing in another language, whew, you're gonna learn way faster, way faster than if you weren't taking any private lessons. That's my experience for the average language learner, not necessarily for your successful polyglot, but he is right. Many polyglots do not really take a lot of group classes, especially, and many of them don't necessarily do private private lessons either. Some of them take private lessons. That one's the, the percentage of them that take private lessons in comparison to the percentage of them that that take group classes. That percentage is quite interesting. Very few take group classes in my experience, but a good percentage of them will take some private lessons, especially for conversation practice, things of that nature. So that's number two that Ollie said. The third thing is that Ollie said that that Polyglots take a, a mentality of saying that grammar figures itself out. They don't over obsess over grammar. And I think generally speaking, that's that's a true statement. That's an important thing to realize. Grammar matters and you do have to learn it, but you can't over obsess over it. I generally agree with what Ollie's saying. Now, what there's a little caveat I want to add in. You see, most polyglots, at least that I've spoken to, and I don't know if most, hmm, many, let's say many, Many polyglots are able to speak multiple languages, but they speak it at a upper intermediate level or lower. Often they speak multiple languages lower than an upper intermediate level. Or sometimes they speak like three or four languages at a very fluent level and they speak a whole bunch more at kind of this B1 level, A2 level, kind of this mid intermediate, upper beginner, low intermediate, something like that. Okay. And the strong languages that they learned, that the process they followed was quite different than the other languages they speak where they're kind of intermediate. They followed a different process. And I do believe that if you want to achieve a high degree of fluency, a very strong level, like a C2, C1, be become proficient in another language, the grammar figures itself out argument, or not to obsess I how do I say this? I don't think even if you're trying to achieve a very proficient level, you probably you still shouldn't obsess over grammar, but you might need to put a little bit extra time on grammar. Let me give you a, a practical example. If we look at something like uh, like like Spanish, okay? You could you could learn Spanish and never touch the subjunctive. You can like if you wanted to get by or even to have like a conversational level, you can never worry about the subjunctive. Because if you make a mistake with the subjunctive and you misconjugate it, you don't use it, people will always understand you. And if the other person uses subjunctive and you don't know what the subjunctive is, you will still understand what they said. You're not going to have any major problems. 
you might think, oh, that sounded a bit different, but you, you'll generally understand what they're saying. Almost always, if not always. Okay. Um, and so the subjunctive, if you're trying to get to like an upper, you know, upper intermediate level or lower, you know, you don't, you don't need to worry much about it. It's okay. But if you're trying to get to a C1, C2, you have to learn the subjunctive. You have to figure that out. You have to. You can't ignore it anymore. Or here's another example. You can't. This doesn't get scored if you were to take a language test, but pronunciation is a great example. Up until a mid-intermediate level, as long as you have an, uh, as long as you're understood and you have clear enough pronunciation, that's great. But if you're trying to go for mastery, of course you could just worry about having good enough pronunciation to be understood. Of course you could, but my personal view of mastery is that your pronunciation is damn good as well. It's not just, oh, you're understood. It's clear enough. It should be pretty darn good. Does that make sense? It's, it has to, can't be, doesn't, doesn't have to be perfect, but it better be really good, right? So that's another example. And I guess it's not grammar, I suppose. Pronunciation is not grammar. But the point I'm trying to make is that when you try to hit mastery, you have to nitpick a little bit more, whether it be with your grammar, whether it be with pronunciation, whether it be with your reading ability, your writing ability, whether it be with, you said something this way and it's 97% correct, but it would be a bit more natural if you said it that way. That kind of stuff happens to me in French and Spanish. If I were really trying to get to a native level of fluency, right now I'm just super duper advanced and I'm kind of happy being super duper advanced. But if I was like, I want to be like a native speaker, I'd have to nitpick. Like I'd have to be like, hey, like I gotta correct even the tiny little mistakes. I've gotta like learn those and fix those. I gotta fix them. Can't make little mistakes if I want to speak like a native speaker. So as a general whole, the, the argument that grammar figures itself out, don't over obsess. General whole, that's a good, that's a good viewpoint, but there's a little there's a couple caveats just to be in to keep in mind, I think. The next thing he says is polyglots tend to commit to languages for a longer period of time. Now, obviously there are polyglots that go learn a language in three months or six months or two months, and they achieve this sort of, they can interact in simple con in simple day-to-day -day conversations really fluently. But if you really want to have a true level of fluency, you, they, polyglots and, and, and people who, people who achieve a, a true level of fluency, let's say a B1 plus or higher, like a mid to upper intermediate level or higher, they commit to languages for a number of years. It is rare, it almost never happens for someone to achieve a true level of fluency. Even just like an upper intermediate, mid intermediate, even mid intermediate, let's say, like a B1 plus. It's rare for someone to achieve that in one year or less. It's rare. Now, there's, there's exceptions, of course, but as I said in the beginning of this podcast, I'm trying to talk in general terms for the vast majority of language learners. Okay? So I agree with Ollie on that one. The next thing Ollie says, this is a big one. Big, big, big one. He says, create they polyglots create social groups around them to practice the target language. This is a huge one. I never realized that about myself, but that's so true. I've and, and many polyglots, I think, do this. Now, some are more introverted and they may do this less, but, but many, many, many successful language learners, not just polyglots, do a good job of either creating social gr groups around them with people that speak the target language so they can actually practice with people in non-academic environments, or they join groups like that and they, 
But one way or another, they surround themselves with native speakers so they can practice with them, speak with them, hear them speak, listen. They do that. And that's a very important piece of the equation. It's crucial. If you can figure that piece out, whoo, that'll help you a lot. Some people do it by finding a job, surrounded by people that speak the other language. Some people volunteer. I used to volunteer at a organization, a francophone organization here in my city. I used to volunteer there, you know, once a month, twice a month, things like that. Um, it, at, when I was at the University of Calgary, I would go to the Spanish Center and I'd hang out there because all the native speakers like to go there to hang out and eat lunch. So I would just go there. French Center, I do the same thing at the university. I travel abroad. I try to make friends online. I've used language exchange apps to try and make online friends. I, I do a lot. I host language exchanges so I can be around native speakers. I can become friends with them. I do a lot to, to create the social circle around me. And it allows me to practice all the time different languages. Okay. The next one here, uh, the seventh or sixth one, sorry, this we're getting close to the end, is, they, is that polyglots find creative ways to learn. They figure out how to learn something, even if a resource perhaps doesn't exist. This is hard to do for a beginner language learner because you're inexperienced. So that's that's that may be true. They find creative ways to learn. But as a beginner, like that's not going to happen. That's not a piece of advice that I believe works for the vast majority of people. Be creative. Do what you, you have to figure. You have to figure out how to learn for yourself. But as a beginner, most of the time, it's probably best for you to follow other pre-established curriculums or methods or apps or things of that nature. Probably until you start to learn more about how you learn, how you learn um, what works for you, what doesn't. But in the beginning, you've got to follow, you got to follow a method or a couple methods. You have to follow others in order to learn more about yourself. It's kind of like, um, there's a lot of analogies I can give that relate to myself quite strongly. It's kind of like, um, uh, you know, when you, you, you start something new, maybe you start a new job and there's been some rules that have been established. In the beginning, you probably follow all the rules. But as you learn the job some more, you figure out which rules don't really matter that much or no one's checking. Or it's like, oh, that's that's what they, the boss says, but it's not really the rule. And then you start to break some of the rules because you realize what's allowed to be broken. Does that make sense? Or here's a here's a be here's a even better example. It's like crossing the road in in Calgary, where I live, there's crosswalks and you have to cross the road at the crosswalk. And that's a law. You have to do that. But here's the thing. Sometimes like there's a road and there's no crosswalk there and the place you're trying to go to is right there across the road there's not a single car in sight you just run across the road people do this all the time and it's technically illegal it's against the rules but people do it because they use their judgment they, they said look there's no cars it's clearly safe i can go but as a child you would definitely not be allowed to do that because you're so inexperienced in life that you would not allow a child to run across the road because you don't want them to make the wrong pattern of, oh, you know the child doesn't have good judgment to figure out when is it safe to run across, when is it not. Same thing applies here. As an experienced language learner, you've got some more judgment as to, oh, this will work for me, this won't. This is effective for me, this isn't. As a beginner, you have no idea, you have no concept. You don't know. And so until you know, it's best to just follow some rules, follow some pre-established methods and structures, etc., 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 until you start to learn more about yourself. Um, the second last thing, it's really the last thing Ollie said, because the last thing Ollie said in the video is kind of a funny one, and it's, he's right, 
in many ways, but it's not a practical thing for everyone to go and do, but we'll mention it. The second last thing is you said they read a lot, which I agree, reading's a powerful tool um, and it, it will help you. That's a big one. You don't have to do it from the beginning. You could if you choose to, but at some point reading's important because here's a fun fact. The vast majority of the words that we know, we don't actually use on a day-to-day -day basis. The vast majority of words that we have in our head, we don't use on a day-to-day -day basis. We know so much more than we actually use and hear on a day-to-day -day basis. So much more, like a crazy amount more. And if you wanted to achieve a reasonably high degree of fluency, reading's key because it introduces you to so many words and phrases and stuff that every native speaker knows, but you wouldn't know if you didn't read. So reading's key. And the last thing Ollie said, it's kind of a funny one, is to get a boyfriend or a girlfriend who speaks that target language and you practice with them. Now, that's not a practical piece of advice that everyone can go do, but that is a true fact for many polyglots. It's not the case for me. I mean, I've not, that's not been the driving force for me personally, but for some people that that does happen, at least for one or two languages. Anyway, um, I do have one more thing I want to talk about, but I think this podcast has gone on long enough and I do have another meeting that starts in 10 minutes. I don't think the thing I want to talk about next will be done in a 10 minute in the 10 minute time frame. So maybe this is a good place to wrap it up. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate your attention as always, and we will talk very, very soon. Bye for now.